Morning. So I want to start this morning by thanking those who preached over the last few weeks when I was not around. Candace Hinkle, Pastor Kristen, and uh, our soon-to-be official pastor of young adults here at ECC, Chuck Potts. There's been some really good, uh, thoughtful, engaging preaching and if, over the past few weeks. And if you missed any of it, I encourage you to go back and watch it or listen to it. I do want to say a special word of thanks to Pastor Kristen, who joked about what on earth I had in mind when I invited her to preach on Genesis chapter 9, or as it's come to be known at ECC, Drunk Naked Noah. Well, I did not give her that passage. I simply broke it out over the calendar, and that was the week she could preach. I do think God gave it to her, however, because I think God knew that she would do a wonderful job, and she did. Her sermon got us through Genesis chapter 9. Today we're moving into the last section of the prologue of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. Today we're moving into chapters 10 and 11. In Genesis 10, we get what is called the Table of Nations. It lists out 70 nations, which in Hebrew thought, the number 70 was a number of completion. It opens with a statement uh, about the origin of these 70 nations. Chapter 10, verse 1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And then 29 verses after this lay out for us each of Noah's sons and their descendants. And then the chapter closes with a similar statement, a summary, but with some changes. And you'll notice there are some key phrases that appear in both at the top and the bottom. Verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent Within their nations, from these the nations spread out, literally the word is divided there, over the earth after the flood. With the Noah's sons appearing in both places and after the flood appearing in both places. They're telling us these, all these things go together. This table of nations is showing us something important that will lead us into chapter 11. It's showing us that all of humanity has the same origin that we all come from the same place. We all come from God. We are the family of God. Humanity is the family of God. And we together most completely represent or show forth the image of God when we do so together, when we are one, when we are unified. But something happened along the way. Our origin of unity and oneness has been divided. What, What is to blame? Before they go, we go there, uh, one more detail. And this is really almost just for fun, uh, because there are fun things in the Bible. Chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, we get the line of Ham, Noah's youngest son. Right in the middle of that section, the genealogy breaks off for a moment and gives us a little narrative. And this narrative tells us who founded the city of Babel, which we're going to discover in chapter 11. Uh, and it, it, it reads like this, this little narrative. Verses 8 to 10, chapter 10. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, Kalna, and Shinar. You see, Babylon is there listed. Very briefly, Nimrod is a towering figure. So well-respected among his people, that there's actually a saying that you hear. If you are a good warrior, if you are a good hunter, someone might say of you, why, you're like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And you would say, that is a mighty compliment. 
In early Christian and Jewish interpretation, it was believed by some that Nimrod actually was the leader in the building of the Tower of Babel, but there is no biblical evidence for this. Now, if you didn't know any of this background about Nimrod, and I said to you, you Nimrod, (laughs) would you think I was complimenting you? Or would you think that maybe you should be offended? Well, for the most part, most of us would think, he just called me an idiot. How did that happen? How do we, how do we go from Nimrod, the mighty hunter for the Lord, to Nimrod, the numbskull? Here's the fun part. Thanks to the people over at the Bible Project who showed me this, and I went and looked it up, and it's true. Uh, it's all this guy's fault. In 1940, Bugs Bunny was hunted by this guy. And he referred to him as a little Nimrod. You little Nimrod. He borrowed, Bugs Bunny borrowed the language, the biblical language of Nimrod, because it means hunter. So he's making fun of him. Yeah, you're Nimrod, all right. No, not really. But it stuck. It was a joke, and it stuck. So now, thanks to Bugs Bunny, if someone calls you a Nimrod, you should be offended. All of that's just for fun, because it was there. I wanted to share it with you. Where does this leave us? I'm regretting that that's still on the screen right now, but it's got to be there for a little longer. (laughs) Chapter 10 reminds us that all of humanity, again, has its origin in God. God is is where we get, we are the family of God. God is our source. In our humanness, as human beings made in the image of God, we are one. That is unity. But by the end of chapter 10, humanity is divided up and spread out over the earth. So chapter 11 will back up a bit and show us how all this happened. Where is that? Notifications. I hate notifications. Chapter 11, 1 and 2. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. When chapter 11 begins, there is still one common language. And the people are in the process of moving eastward over the land. This is a flashback. If you remember, in the first verse of chapter 10 and in the last verse of chapter 10, changed. It was where, where it started. But by the time you got to the end, there were already languages and divisions. So we're doing a little flashback. We're getting the backstory of what actually happened in cha- to bring us through chapter 10. Before all of this happens, God's people are doing what God commanded them to do in Genesis 1. There, in verse 28, we are told that when God created humankind, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. From the very beginning, God purposed that human beings would fill the earth, that they would move out from the Garden of Eden into the world as God's image bearers who will mirror forth God's character, God's glory, and will co-reign with God in the world. God restated this commandment to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9, verse 7. But here, after the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the disobedience of Cain and Lamech and so many others, after the flood, after the the covenant that God made with Noah, here, the descendants of Noah resist God's commandment once again. Because as we learned two weeks ago, they are still human. And so are we. They stop 
moving eastward. They resist God's call to fill the earth and subdue it. They, they, they think they know a better way and they, they take matters into their own hands, not unlike their predecessors, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. But the disobedience of these descendants of Noah doesn't stop with them settling in Shinar. It gets worse, verses 3 and 4. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You can hear their very intentional, willed, planned disobedience here. Their their lack of trust in God. They clearly do not want to do what God told them to do. They do not want to be scattered over the face of the earth. They, they want to settle down and stop filling the earth. To borrow from the late comedian George Carlin, we could actually subtitle this passage of Scripture, Never Underestimate the Power of Stupid People in Large Groups. But it's going to get worse. They discover a new technology, baked bricks and tar for mortar instead of stones, and whatever they used for mortar before that. And they decide to build a tower out of that technology that reaches to the heavens so they can make a name for themselves. Any new technology, from the printing press to the internet, any new technology, as good and as as wonderful and as easy as it may make our lives, has the potential to be abused. Humanity's purpose was to co-reign over the earth in God's name, to mirror forth God's image in the world, and now they're concerned about their own name. They are concerned about their own image in the world, not God's. And they want to do things their own way. Now, like Adam and Eve, they want to become like God and do whatever they think best. The tower they are building was likely a Babylonian ziggurat. It's a pyramid of sorts, stepping its way up. And at the top there, on the top floor, is a temple where God or the gods dwelt. If we were to go over and spend time in Ezekiel 28, verses 13 to 14, we would we'd be told something there that we don't know from the Genesis account. We'd be told there that Eden, the Garden of Eden, was actually on top of a mountain. Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14. It was high up, the Garden of Eden, the place where God and human beings lived together, the place where the heavens and the earth overlapped, was on a mountain. This tower is an artificial mountain. The descendants of Noah stop moving over the whole earth. They settle. They build a tower, a ziggurat, we think, with a temple on top. They attempt to recreate the Garden of Eden in their own image. The place where heaven and earth overlap. And in doing so, they disobey God. How will God respond? Verses 5 through 9. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If it's one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. 
So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is not actually the reason the city was called Babel. That's a joke that the author is making to poke fun at Babel and Babylon. The name Babel is actually not a Hebrew word. It's an Akkadian word, and it derives from the word Bab-elu, which means gate of the gods. Fortuitously, the word, however, sounds very similar to a word in Hebrew, Babel, which is a word for confusion. So while Babylon did not actually get its name from that Hebrew word, the joke, the slur against the Babylonians works in Hebrew, and it turns out also in English. On the heels of the story, we get another genealogy this time. However, this point, this, at this point, the, it, it's not trying to teach us about the nations and where the nations come from. It's all aimed at getting us to the end of the genealogy where a, a beacon of hope is introduced into the story, the end of chapter 11. The genealogy takes us all the way to Shem's great, 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 great grandson, Terah. Here's what we read about him, verse 26 of chapter 11. After Terah lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. <clears throat> so Abram is introduced. He will later be known by the Hebrew people, the Jews, as the father of faith. And then in the last few verses of chapter 11, we are given a bit more detail about Abram's family. We are told that Abram's wife was Sarai and that she was unable to conceive. And that's an important detail that will matter in the chapters ahead. She, she who is unable to conceive will be promised by God that she will have a son and that son Isaac will become the father of Jacob and Jacob will eventually have his name changed to Israel and when the next book of the Old Testament begins the book of Exodus Israel's descendants will find themselves enslaved in Egypt and God will send them Moses to deliver them from slavery and into the promised land so what happens at the end of the prologue of the book of Genesis is very important for God's history with his people right through the Old Testament and deep into the New Testament as well. Terah and his family leave Babylon for the land of Canaan, we are told, where they, where they came from, and they take a rather circuitous route if you were to look at a map. The two cities are like this, but they do face in your way. They do up here, and they stop in Haran. could have done that, but they go up here, and they stop. They decide not to go any further. <clears throat> Terah dies in Haran, and God intends for Abram and Sarai to continue the journey toward Canaan. So sometime after Abram's father, Terah, dies, we read this in Genesis chapter 12. Now, technically, this is a series on Genesis chapters 1 through 11, but we're just going to get a little preview of coming attractions, a little bit of hope. We're going to dip our toes into it just a little bit. <clears throat> The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God tips his hand here. God has something very big up his sleeve. Abram, who has no children and no hope of having children, 
will somehow become the father of a great nation. And somehow all those who have been divided and scattered will be blessed. In just three chapters from this one, Abram will doubt this promise. He will cry out to God, look, back in chapter 12, you promised me children. You promised me a nation, and I have no children. In Genesis 15, 5, God gave Abram an image of just how faithful God was going to be to this promise. God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. When you and I look at the sky, we really don't get the full picture. We can't really see anything close to what Abram saw. The problem is light pollution. Abram didn't have the James Webb Space Telescope, or Hubble for that matter, like we do. What we see when we look at the sky is the slide on the right because of light pollution. You, if you look at it, you can see some stars. You can see a lot of stars. But if there were no light pollution, same patch of sky, by the way, you would see that. Count them if you can. Count them if you can, God said. And of course, you can't. After showing Abram the night sky and promising him countless offspring, verse 6 tells us that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram became the father of faith, and later his name was changed to Abraham, which means father of many. Now let's get back to where and how this leads us to Jesus. At the top of that tower was a temple, a physical place where it was believed heaven and earth overlapped. It, it, was where, it was a place where people could be with God. Even, even amid all their still humanness, even amid all their pride and their sin and their disobedience, on some level, they still wanted, to, they wanted God to be with them. They built a place where they could meet with God. They wanted God to be with them. On some level, we all do, whether we know it or not. But like Adam and Eve before them, like so many of us today, they wanted to do it on their own terms. They wanted to do it on their own terms. This is a, another example of how the very thing they wanted, the very thing they most needed, was the very thing God had already planned to give them. They just didn't trust God to come through on it. That's where we find ourselves at the end of Genesis chapter 11. Several months ago, Pastor Kristen introduced you to a, a literary device known as a chiasmus, which is the laying out of a passage in a symmetrical form with lines at the beginning mirroring lines at the bottom, and they, they're all designed to draw your eye toward what's at the center of the passage, the middle. And that is what is happening in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. I'm, I'm not going to lay all of that up. I'm going to give you a quick slide of it in just a minute. But if, if you get the Bible app... Uh, on your phone or your tablet, and you uh, turn your location services on, uh, you can uh, go in there and find, uh, from clicking on more, going to events, then you can find ECC's live event. And there'll be several other things in there having to do with the sermon, but also lots of stuff having to do with what's going on in life at ECC. I want to encourage you to do that. In there, I've placed a slide that looks like this. 
which we're not going to spend a lot of time on. I just want you to see how, how the chiasmus works here. And then you ask the question, if that's, if that's what it looks like, what do we find sandwiched right in the middle of the passage? What is the center of this chiastic structure? And of course, I've highlighted it for you, so it's quite easy. Verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. God came down to see what was happening. God intervened. This is what God will do in a, in a very different way. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when God takes on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, as John puts it. Now, Genesis chapter 11, it looks like God comes down to punish people. And to be certain, there is disciplinary action going on there, but it's more than that. It's way more than that. God is setting things back on track. God is scattering people and dividing the nations in order to eventually bring unity to all things. They're united against God. That won't stand. God has to scatter them and bring them back. Unity. When God comes down again in John chapter 1, He will not come down to judge or to confuse or to scatter. God will come down to save and to heal and to draw all people to Himself. A return to the unity that God has always intended, the unity, the, the completeness of the family of God. When we get to the first chapter of the book of Acts, the risen Jesus will tell His disciples that they are to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, promising them that when they receive the Spirit, they will have the power to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to the nations. And then after Jesus ascends, in Acts chapter 2, God will send His Holy Spirit upon humanity to undo what was done in Genesis chapter 11. God will send His Spirit to undo what was done in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, God confused the languages of the nations and scattered them. In Acts chapter 2, God will enable everyone present to understand one another. God will unify what has been divided. The Spirit will fall. The sound of a mighty rushing wind, the wind of the Spirit, will draw a crowd. Flames of fire will rest upon the heads of these first followers and they will begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus to all the God-fearing Jews from every nation who were in Jerusalem that day and they will understand it. And this happens, Luke says, of those present in Acts 2, verses 7 and 8. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? In the coming of the Holy Spirit, God has undone what happened with the Tower of Babel incident. There the people tried to unify against God, so God scattered them. God scattered and divided them on the way to true unity. Here, God unifies around His purposes. God takes things all the way back to their origin story. We are all made in God's image. All human beings were and are a part of the family of God, and now God has sent His Spirit to bring us back home again, to restore the unity that has been divided. Unity amid diversity has always 
been part of God's plan. Unity amid diversity has always been part of God's plan. But in order to make that happen, there had to be a scattering first so that the plan of God could move forward. If we were to stop for a minute right there and consider the challenges over the past few years, where does your mind go? We have witnessed division in our world. We have witnessed division in our nation, division in our communities, division in our congregation, division in our families. Here at ECC, we have lost people. We have faced financial challenges. We have faced challenges surrounding the mission. We have been through a lot. We have been scattered and divided. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that brought unity. It is the Holy Spirit who can bring and restore that unity today. We too can receive and respond to the Holy Spirit afresh, for that is the only way that everything that divides us can give way to the unity of the Spirit of God, the unity that the Spirit of God has for us all. Later on in our New Testaments, the Apostle Paul will write about the promise and call of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul will lift up Abraham as one who is made righteous by faith and not by works. Why is he doing this? Because when he wants us to know that when Abraham saw the stars and heard God's, God's promise, he believed. He trusted God to keep his promise. Where Adam and Eve failed, where the builders of the tower in chapter 11 failed, Abraham succeeded. Abraham believed. This is what Paul said to the Galatians about Abraham's faith in Galatians 3.8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. When God called Abraham to go, when God promised that all nations would be blessed by and through Abraham's and Sarah's descendants, Paul says, God was announcing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, in advance. Everything God has always intended comes true in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and in the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out upon God's church then and down through the ages. God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, but God was not only talking about the Hebrew people, the Jews. God was talking about us. God was talking about those of us who will come to faith, come to know God in Christ Jesus by faith. We are a part of the great nation God promised to Abraham. This is the, one of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. What you're actually seeing there mostly are galaxies, not stars. There are some stars there. Hundreds of millions of stars in that picture, if not more. And just to get a picture, and some of you have heard this already, but I'm going to say it again because it's way cool. That little patch of sky right there is the same size if you held a grain of sand between your forefinger and your thumb at arm's length and looked up. That grain, that's a grain of sand in the sky space. There are a lot of stars. Count them if you can. Count them if you can. This fall, we're going to do a deep dive into the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. 
And right at the outset in that letter, Paul tells us something profound about God's plan. He, he tells us something that has always been a bit of a mystery, something hidden in God's plan that uh, is now revealed to us in Christ Jesus. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. In Him, Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Here's the plan. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What divides us, sisters and brothers? What yet blocks the unity at the core of God's heart and purpose in our world, in our nation, in our community, in our congregation, in our homes, with our families? And how do we find healing? How do we tap into that unity that God intended from the very beginning? How do we do that again? The answer is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The Holy Spirit will not force anything upon us. We must surrender to the Holy Spirit. We must surrender to the purposes of God rather than thinking we can do it our own way. Would you join with me as I close us in prayer? God, in your great mercy and wisdom, you have preserved these accounts in your word for us to ponder and to read and to come to over and over and over again and find your wisdom, find the mystery of your plan revealed to us. And Lord, we see in your heart in these passages, both Genesis 11 and Acts chapter 2, your heart for unity. Lord, we ask that you forgive our divisions. We ask that you forgive where we divide off from others in our families, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our congregations, over race, over politics, over whatever, God. We ask you to forgive our divisions and our divisive attitudes. We pray, Lord God, for the power of your spirit to grant us unity at home in our congregation and beyond. We pray, God, for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to move us, to empower us, to transform us. We pray, God, that we might have the privilege and the joy of seeing many others come to faith in Christ because we are one, because we have received power from on high, because we are more and more living into that unity that you have called us to. God, pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Make of us the people you want and call us to be. Make of us the people only you can make us into. That we might love and serve you all our days. That we might love and serve one another and our neighbors. And that your kingdom might expand on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.